Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. An auto theft epidemic. We're still getting calls. Traced to a cost-cutting design. And no one was doing anything about it. This week on Open Record, the Milwaukee law firm that launched a nationwide legal offensive against the automakers whose name gave rise to the Kia boys. Kia and Hyundai, you want to pick a fight? Well, you know, pick a fight with us. Let's go. From the Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. We are investigative reporters breaking down the big stories, what it took to get them, taking you behind the scenes. It's the stuff we couldn't tell you on TV. I'm Brian Polson, and Sarah Smith and Jenna Sachs are both away this week, so I've got a couple of special guests with me today. One returning to the podcast, Sam Kramer. Thanks for being on, Sam. Thanks for having me, Brian. And for her maiden voyage on Open Record, we have Fox 6's Stephanie Grady. I am so happy to be here, guys. Glad to have you here. Remember, if you are listening to the podcast we also have a video version of open record now you can get that on the fox 6 youtube channel and i believe it's going to be eventually on the fox local app i'm still not up to date on when that's all going to launch so i'm not going to keep talking about that but eventually it's going to be a great place to watch on your smart tv um we're recording this episode on wednesday june 14th for release on thursday june 15th and This being Wednesday the 14th, tonight we're going to be airing, Stephanie, your one-on-one interview with James Barton. He's an attorney whose law firm filed the first of what became a large number of class action lawsuits against Kia and Hyundai. So by the time this podcast is out, that video will be available. People can go watch your one-on-one interview. But let me start with you about how this interview came about and, and what you did to prepare for that. This interview, I think, has been really a long time coming. I mean, the attorneys at the center of this, and obviously, as you guys know, this turned into many, many class action lawsuits that happened all across the country in multiple states that ended up consolidating out in California into one major lawsuit, an MDL. Um, But they couldn't talk about it until there was some sort of settlement because it was under litigation. And as you guys know, with what we do for a living, attorneys can't talk about things until things are kind of down the road. And so we're down the road now. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Kia and Hyundai kind of waved the white flag and they said, we are ready to settle on this whole thing and not actually take the whole thing to trial where there's going to be discovery and evidence and all that sort of stuff. And they ended up settling for $200 million. Now there's two pots of that money. Some will go to help the people whose cars have been stolen, those who have been victimized, injuries, all that sort of stuff. But then other another part of that money is going to go to actually fix the issue and give all of the impacted vehicles upgrades that are necessary to they're not going to be a mobilizer technology that was not initially installed in the vehicle but it's going to be some sort of anti-theft upgrade that's going to come now i want to step back for a minute because i think it's really important that we set the scene for those who don't know aren't familiar with these lawsuits and maybe for our listeners and viewers outside the city of milwaukee for whom this hasn't been maybe as big of a deal as it has been right here 
why are they suing Kia and Hyundai? Where did this all come from? And, and you know, what the heck are the Kia boys? Maybe, Sam, you could start with a little bit because I know you've covered some of this. Sure. Uh, yeah. On the day to day grind, we, we come into this problem a lot. Um, and there's an issue specifically with these two automakers as far as being more perceptible to theft. So about two years ago, we saw a huge spike in the number of cars, vehicles that were stolen here in Milwaukee. And it didn't take police long to determine that there was a trend. And the trend was, it was those two brands, uh, those two automakers, Hyundai and Kia. So, I mean, I, I can't tell you the number of people we've talked to that said, yep, I, I tried to get a club or, you know, I, I tried to park in a lit area or what have you. All these extra prevention methods that still don't solve the problem. And so this is an issue uh, that seems like it, it has impacted Milwaukee maybe more than others, but certainly Milwaukee isn't alone in this. What, what strikes me about it is, you know, when you could talk about an increase in any sort of category of crime, you usually think about maybe 20% or 30%. This was insane, like 2,500% mm-hmm. increase in auto theft. So this is just off the charts. Stephanie, why Kia and Hyundai? What, what is it about these two manufacturers that made their cars so vulnerable or such rich targets for theft? Well, what's really interesting is that Kia and Hyundai, although they are separate automakers, they're both Korean automakers, they share a lot of things. If you're going to go up the corporate ladder, they share a lot of the same um, design framework, I guess you could say, Um, the same, you know, patented intelligence and all that sort of stuff when they're creating their vehicles. And Basically, back in the 90s, immobilizers, these anti-theft devices, they're required over in Europe. They've been required since the 90s. They're required in Canada. They're required in a lot of other countries around the world. They're not required here in the United States. But it was basically back in the 90s where this immobilizer technology kind of came to be. And at the time, NHTSA, that does a lot of the regulations for the automobile industry here in the United States, they have what's called minimum safety standards and say or minimum performance standards. And so they lay out this set of ground rules is that this is what the expectations are in terms of safety and all that sort of stuff. And there used to be a requirement. There still is a requirement called the VIN parts marking requirement, which basically means that that VIN number that's on your car door is on all these different various parts within your car. And that's an anti-theft type of thing because if somebody steals your car, they take it to a chop shop, they chop up your car, they start selling off parts, they can figure out, they can start piecing things together. When so it, comes it helps to them after case. the fact. It helps in terms of piecing together, making a case. After the fact. After and the, the whole fact. idea here, right, is to keep the public safe. And so data shows that when cars are involved, when stolen cars are involved in chases or just stolen in general, the likelihood that they're going to result in injury or some sort of fatality or something like that or detriment to the community is so much higher than just a car that's not stolen. And so they're trying to reduce the amount of cars stolen. But then this immobilizer technology became kind of ubiquitous in the 1990s. And NHTSA said here in the U.S., you can either abide by the parts marking requirement or you can do this immobilizer technology, which, by the way, works a lot better. Every single automaker made this change pretty much across all their vehicle lines, not just the highest end vehicle lines, except for Kia and Hyundai. And that was in the 1990s. And I want to come back to that for a minute because you talk about it being required in other countries. And in your interview with James Barton, you asked him, is it required here? And he said, no. And I want to come back to that in a minute. Mm-hmm. But but let me ask you this, um, Sam, with the immobilizer, can you explain what the immobilizer technology even is. What is it? How does it work? And, and why is it so important? So 
I'm not a car expert, but I'll do my best here. So it's my understanding that it's underneath. Uh, and and when, when we've looked at it, let me back up and I'll explain it this way. The thing that has made these two vehicles so rich targets is the fact that there was a, a trend exposed on TikTok that they can kind of get underneath the steering wheel and um, almost kind of trick the the ignition and they don't need the keys. They pull something out. Boom, they're good to go. The immobilizer and stuff, am I understanding right? It mm-hmm. kind of prevents that from happening. It does. And so what James Barton, this attorney, did when he first started getting into all the case research and what they they went to a junkyard and they got two uh basically steering blocks from one from a kia one from a hyundai to see okay what's going on here what is the similarities between the two what's going on so they just reverse engineered this they reverse engineered it which they do in so many cases right but they weren't they're not car experts none of them are auto mechanics by trade and so they went there they got these steering columns and they basically reverse engineered everything and these kids literally kids figured out and Milwaukee was ground zero for that we know them as the kia boys now but these kids figured out that you could literally just pop out the little key part where you stick your key in or where the push button thing is. And there's literally a button. There's a button that you can push to start the engine after you pop this piece and out. they don't really want you talking about that probably right now, because I know that they've gone to great lengths in these cases to black out but a lot of information. Right. Well, the Kia boys figured it out, so it's probably right. not that hard that somebody else is going to figure this out. But when you look at these lawsuits, I notice they're blacking out a lot of information, essentially because it's maybe proprietary manufacturer's information, but also I think they're trying not to sort of advertise to the public how you steal these cars. Well, and that's what's really interesting is that when James Barton originally filed this lawsuit back in 2021, it was originally filed under seal, which as you know, Brian, is not a usual thing. I mean, there has to be very certain circumstances for a judge to sign off on something being filed under seal. At the end of the day, cases can't be litigated in secret. They can't be litigated in private. Something has to be public. And so after redacting what they wanted to redact and the whole point of it, and James Barton admitted to it, they didn't want media attention. They didn't want what was already a horrible problem turning into an epidemic in the city of Milwaukee to basically- Too late. Yeah, exactly. But basically like the veil come off, which the Kia boys did once they put their stuff on TikTok. Um, But that was the whole point of originally filing it under seal. Once they filed the redacted version, that's when 60 plus copycat lawsuits within weeks popped up across the country with pretty much the exact same verbiage that James Barton put together in his class action suit. Um, then it all I'm consolidating and ending up in California. What really stood out to me, or I found fascinating in, in watching your interview with James and then also in looking at some of the documentation from the case is this goes back to, you talked about the regulations, the federal regulations for, for safety and security. This goes back to the 60s, mm-hmm. the 1960s. They were talking in federal regulatory filings about juveniles going on joy, joy, joy rides. rides and endangering the life and limb of people on America's highways. And that's why they came up with these regulations in the first place. At the time, though, it was focused on people leaving their keys in the car, right? Sure. So if you ever open your car door and your key's still in the ignition, you hear that ding that reminds you, oh, hey, idiot, your key's still in the, you know, that came from the 1960s. And there were some other things that were. But again, that's not required, right? So NHTSA can't require something like that because they can only. They only have minimum performance standards. And so then it's up to the automaker to decide, hmm, do I want to be held liable down the road for X, Y, and Z, hence Kia and Hyundai, right? Do I want to be held liable for X, Y, and Z? Because at the end of the day, some attorney out there is going to be able to prove 
you knew better. You knew better. The data was out there to prove it. We told you and you still decided not to do it. So that was the 60s when it was really about the physical key. Mm -hmm. And there were some other other factors there. But obviously, technology has changed greatly. And now we talk about this immobilizer technology that all of these other car manufacturers are putting on their vehicle lines. Which, by the, the way, board. not to interrupt you, but Kia and Hyundai, they installed immobilizers on their top of the line vehicles. And, and that's and that brings me to the question of the why, because it's we know it's not required, but it's also very commonplace because you don't want cars to be stolen. Um, but there's a cost. There is a cost. This. I mean, at the end of the day, if you had to guess something, if you knew nothing about this case, what does it come down to? Well, it probably comes down to money, right? And the parts marking requirement that we talked about, it probably costs anywhere between four to six dollars per vehicle, depending on like how big the vehicle is and whatnot. For the immobilizer technology, it's anywhere from like, I think I, I, pardon me if I recite these numbers wrong, but it's anywhere from like two to six hundred dollars per vehicle. So I mean, it's just an astronomically much larger number. You know what I'm saying? When you multiply that out over the right. entire millions of vehicles, line right? Of Every vehicles, single right. year that they're producing. So, um, yeah, I, I got the impression though he was suggesting that because they sold that as an option on their more expensive lines it wasn't just the cost of the two to four or six hundred dollars for that device on the one car that they were concerned about it was the idea that they could charge a thousand to fifteen hundred for an upgraded package to have that technology on the the luxury lines is that mm -hmm. right well we and i tried to talk to james barton a little bit more about the cost and really get into it they really didn't spend a ton of time focusing on that because they never even ended up getting into discovery. All of that would have come out if this thing would have ended up in trial with discovery and really getting into it and trying to prove that this was a cost-cutting measure and all that. They know the basic numbers, obviously, because that information is can be found anywhere. Um, but yeah, his suggestion is, I mean, it's obvious, you know? It's pretty common sense, yeah. Sam, you talked to, to James when this announcement of a settlement first came out and, and you hear a number like $200 million and, and I was, you always wonder like, is that a lot or is that not a lot? How do they feel about this figure in terms of the number of people who are represented in the class? So they're happy with the number, at least preliminarily. Uh, and again, as Steph mentioned, there's there's two buckets in there. That's one that's going directly to the victims and then another that's actually going to help pay for some of the security upgrades that only now they've actually come forward and really offered across the board. So you still have a Kia or Hyundai that falls into this category. Hasn't been stolen yet, but you want to get the protection. Yes. Uh, and part of that includes uh, a sticker that goes on the window that they hope maybe deters uh, a thief coming up and seeing that you have that. So um, it's not as far as a recall. They're not going as far as not. issuing a recall, but they're saying, hey, we'll give you this upgrade. Call your local Kia dealer or Hyundai dealer and we'll get you in. You know, right. And and he he was clear that it doesn't it doesn't differentiate or this settlement doesn't mean that other lawsuits, including the city of Milwaukee's, uh, those aren't settled yet. This is completely different. Mm -hmm. So um, these folks are going to have an opportunity to get some money to to really recoup their cost. If it's insurance, if it's their car being totaled, what have you. It's something uh, I'm not sure how much it will be. That remains to be seen. But it's certainly something that helps to recover what they've been through. Let me ask you this, because either one of you can answer this if you know, but what is Kia and Hyundai's sort of defense in all of this? I mean, I can imagine some people, maybe not those companies, saying, well, it's not just the car company's fault that these cars are getting stolen. It's the Kia boy's fault, and it's police for not doing enough to hold them accountable or the courts or something like that. What do the manufacturers say about this? Or are they saying they throwing up their hands and going, yep, we messed up here? They haven't said much. They pushed back which was expected, right? You file a lawsuit, you're expecting some sort of pushback. You're expecting to file a brief after that. So it it basically said, 
this is other people's fault. This is how can you blame this on us? These are just our vehicles, you know, we're the victims here kind of a thing. I think it's also important to point out because I asked James Barton, you know, you have the people whose cars were stolen, total, never recovered, whatever it might be, <clears throat> excuse me, and they're going to end up getting compensated for whatever their losses were, right? Um, their physical losses. Who knows if there's going to be any sort of emotional loss that gets tacked on there. But I asked, what about the people whose lives have been destroyed, ended, or families have just been completely and totally turned upside down by being hit by one of these stolen cars? Is any money from this pot of $200 million going to help any of these families who may have been innocent in their own car driving and then just ended up getting slammed by one of these stolen Kias. Um, that is completely separate from this. So, which is actually good news for those families because those families can still go ahead and file their own lawsuit. Because you guys know with class action lawsuits, once everyone signs off and that's the phase we're in now. So the settlement, this preliminary deal has been reached. That was reached a couple of weeks ago. Kia and Hyundai said, yep, we'll pay the $200 million. But everybody has to sign off on it because every single person involved in the class action lawsuit and in some of these class act, I mean, they're huge, right? Tons and tons and dozens of people involved in these things. Every single one has to sign off because as soon as they sign off, they're giving up their rights to ever resue again, right? And so they want to make sure. But like Sam, you mentioned insurance companies, the city of Milwaukee that obviously has sustained plenty of losses at, you know, the expense of Kia and Hyundai, um, they can all. They're all still free game. You yeah, know, they can still file. I was going to add to the one thing that struck me when this deal was first reached is the the statements from Kia and Hyundai, which are very similar in that, yes, this deal is reached, but here's X, Y, and Z of all the things that we've done after the fact. Mm -hmm. So that I think the 200 million shows you that they're admitting fault, but that's about it. Mm -hmm. they're, they're trying to, to sell you on the fact that, yes, we have offered these upgrades and we are working on this and our newer technology cars, this doesn't really affect that, but the money is kind of their, oh yeah, hey, we, we screwed up here. I think they just kind of wanted to go away at this sure. point, you know, and we just had a case, we just had a story on our news. It was just a day turn story that we did about a woman. Um, and I think it was a contact six story uh, with her Kia and there was, it was stolen out of a dealership parking lot. That's what it was. It was stolen out of a dealership parking lot and she didn't want to have to pay the $500 deductible on her insurance, right? And she was trying to get the dealership to pay it for her and contact six ended up helping her and the dealership ended up paying it. But it was because corporate Kia said, just pay them, just Send them the check, you know, because at this point, it just seems they just want to wipe their hands clean. They want this thing gone so they can move forward. You know, I, I do think that when when you talk about something like this and I even look back at the, the Federal Register from the 1960s, there's always that question of, is it the automaker's fault that other people are committing crimes? But the government decided at that time that we can do a lot of public good with some of these basic anti-theft measures. This is another case where now it's it's still not a requirement. I do think from a legal standpoint, that's interesting because it's mm -hmm. not required. If we're not required to do it, then, hey, is it our fault that somebody's exploiting this? And obviously they're paying up, so they're they're at least acknowledging that that they think that they that they might, uh, it might be advantageous to settle at this mm -hmm. point. But, but that being said, there is that question of, are other people involved here in some way responsible? Is the criminal justice system responsible for sort of allowing this to go on for the same people to get arrested doing this over and over again? It's certainly something we hear viewers talking about, but um, that's a good defense for them. You know, I mean, I, I can imagine that's something they might be bringing. It's something they might be bringing up, but but when you compare Kia and Hyundai to any of the other automakers, 
it's, I mean, I think I saw the figure that it was like 66% of the car thefts were those two brands. Um, and there are a lot of brands of vehicles in the city of Milwaukee. So that does indicate there is a, a significant vulnerability there um, beyond the others. One thing I wanted to point out too, and I thought it was interesting, James Barton's interview, he seemed, you asked him, I thought it was a fascinating question, which was, was your law firm sort of a, is this one of your specialties going in? And he laughed at that. This is personal in some ways for him. He talked about the personal connection. Um, I think he said it was what his nanny drives one of these roads where there'd been a, a terrible crash. And he thought about the risk to his children mm -hmm. who were in that car. And then he, he made the comment, you know, okay, Kia, you want to fight? You know, you want to pick a fight? Let's go. That sounded personal. You know, I think it really was, to be honest with you. I mean, James Barton's a relatively young guy. He worked for one of the big firms in Milwaukee for several years, but he had just started his small litigation boutique. I, I, I don't know the exact year, but just a year or two before all of this kind of came to be. And so he was just on his own. And it was a couple of friends at the firm who had said, called him and said, hey, I had my car stolen. One was a Kia, one was a Hyundai. And he said, you know, they said, have you heard what's been going on? And he had no idea, started doing some research and just was like, this is insane. But then started seeing the news stories, right? It just all kind of was like, just kind of like a little trickle effect. Um, and then it was just like the big gush. But yeah, he talked about this one specific case. And it was a story that we had on our newscast of a guy who had was in a stolen Kia, flying down Good Hope Road at like 90 miles an hour, T-bones a car, you know what happens next, right? So he saw that and was like, my kids could be in that car. I mean, you don't even have to have a Kia or a Hyundai. You could protect yourself. If you want to say, okay, I'm going to avoid having that brand of car because they're more commonly stolen. Doesn't matter. I mean, you could have any car, you know, and just be still impacted by this whole thing. And so that's when he decided, all right, well, nobody else is going to do this. I'm going to go ahead and take it on. So, you know, I give him a lot of credit for doing it. And he went old school. I thought one of the coolest things about our interview, and to be honest, we didn't really get into it a ton um, or at all in what's going to be airing tonight, but he went old school. He called up the bar and he said, I am trying to find people impacted by something. I want to make sure that I'm doing everything like the bar, meaning the bar association. Yes, the, the bar. Okay. So, <laughs> calling up the bar, asking for shots. No, he called the bar association to make sure that he was, you know, being good and staying legal and everything like that. And he made up these hot green flyers and he he and his first year out of law school, new hire, went around and would just paper Kia and Hyundais in various parking lots, movie theaters, shopping malls, grocery stores, whatever, and set up specific websites, you know, Hyundai stolen or Kia stolen, whatever it was, and people would go there, fill out their form, put their contact information, and he just started gathering information. Because you know how it is. You get your car stolen or something happens or you're like, wait, what do I, who do I call? I don't even, I don't have an attorney. I don't know. So he was basically going out there marketing himself, totally old school. And it worked. He might not like this comparison, but as you described that, I started imagining better call Saul. <laughs> I, That's I in, mean, yes. immediately what yes. I thought of like shoe leather, getting out there, putting the stuff on. The, I'm happy you, know, you made the comparison, call? not me. <laughs> okay, you can tell James, I apologize, but that's what the first guy, I just finished better call Saul. It's by a the great way. show. So it, it is a fantastic show. Um, last question I'll ask, and either one of you can address this. If you are someone who owns a Kia or a Hyundai that falls into this category of vehicles without the immobilizer, and you know that there's this settlement sitting out there. Like, what's next? Do you do something? Do you wait to hear? What do you do? I think his first piece of advice was call your local dealer mm -hmm. and get your car in as soon as you possibly can. 
you don't want to be involved on the other side of this, right? Um, but I think the the wait for the actual financial compensation could be a little bit longer because as we know about federal court, it doesn't really move that fast. Is that? Yes. And the people who obviously had their cars stolen and were impacted um, more so than just having a Kia that doesn't have this upgrade to it, right? Um, those people are likely already working with an attorney. If they're not working with an attorney, call James Barton. He obviously can direct you in the right place and whatnot. So get your name on the list is basically what it is and fill out some forms and whatnot um, to join the class action. But if you just have a car that needs the upgrade, you're not going to get a check written to you just for having a Kia or a Hyundai. That's not what's going to happen. You're going to be allowed to get this free upgrade. So don't think that you're going to like walk away with no couple hundred bucks because you just happen to have a Kia or a Hyundai. Yeah. And I think it's going to be, you know, a, a few thousands. I mean, we've been chatting with people as we've gone along and re reporting on these stories. And, you know, I've had people say, oh, you know, my car was totaled. The value was like 12 grand. And then you have losses too. And like you mentioned, the emotional damage part is going to be interesting mm -hmm. if they factor that in. If, oh, I had to miss work and, you know, I've, I've done all these certain things um, just because of that one event. So it's going to be really interesting to see how they actually formulate that. But that could be months. Oh, months. I mean, maybe everyone has to be comfortable with it. And you're yeah. talking thousands of people across the country, right? Um, we're ground zero, but this is happening all over the place. And so everyone has to sign off on that. James Barton thinks maybe Q1, Q2 next year it would be totally signed, sealed, delivered. And then, you know, checks would start going out, I guess you could say. The process moves slowly. Always. Wheels of justice. Well, that's a good time for us to go off the record. This is the part of the podcast where we get a little more casual and have a little fun by answering a question for which we have not prepared. And with Sarah out, our technical director of open record, Kale Zimney has this week's off the record question. What do you have for us, Kale? So I thought about it and I do have a number of them, but we'll save, you know, obviously we can only do one. But I want to know what your favorite obscure smell is. <laughs> obscure what? smell? Yes. Ooh, Obviously, you know, you your can favorite. also tell me your wor your least favorite too. But what we've got time for is I want to know hmm. what your favorite smell is. It doesn't have to be obscure. Okay, I'll go first. All right, Kale, you're ready. So you mine is race car exhaust. Oh, you, you actually, yeah, you that's guys your had your roadie. That's your mo. You had the little <laughs> race car thing for a while, didn't you? Guys had like a little racing team. We did, yeah. We raced the '99 Jetta, so we weren't quite burning that high octane fuel that you, you <laughs> smell in the real race cars. But you know, hey, regular's good too. That that's that's me. <laughs> okay, Steph, you seemed like you had something already. You were leaning toward the mic, so I'm gonna let you go next because. And you know what? This. this triggered in my brain only because it like hit me the other day walking into work because we just had the landscapers here mulch oh yeah we just yeah. i like the smell of mulch it just, just reminds yeah. me of like summer and my dad like because he used to like well probably because he used to force me to like help him fill the wheelbarrow yeah. yep. and yep. shove it around the yard we just did that a few weekends ago we had uh, you know got all the kids because we have now three in college and one in high school and and i got them all out there i said everybody's helping Dude, we send have them to my house next I, well <laughs> I, you know it was great because we have 10 yards of mulch we had to spread and actually last time we had 15 but i didn't want to do that much and because uh, it's expensive too, so I we got the ten yards of mulch, and I was as we're shoveling it, I was just taking in that sort of like pine, whatever that scent is. It was fantastic. And one of my my stepson, as we we're shoveling it, he said, "God, what is this awful smell?" <laughs> and I thought the different perspective you can have on the same exact yeah. thing. I thought I I agree with you. I think the mulch smells fantastic. You know, it's funny. I So, yeah, I, I can't tell you how many summers I did that uh, for my dad, helping my dad. And I would agree when I was younger, same thing. I'm like, this 
stinks. Yes. But now it's almost nostalgic and I appreciate it. Yep. So it's kind of like an acquired, yes. there's a, okay, a nostalgic smell. It's not that you actually like it. Uh, Except that it, it's a throwback. I don't mind it now. Okay. Maybe that's because I'm not lifting it anymore at the moment. That's okay. Fair point. That could we'll scar you. You could hate it because of that. So I guess it's good that there's some nostalgia. For for me, in terms of, you said obscure, which that was throwing me. But if it's, and I don't it know if this. It doesn't have to be obscure. That's just because, you know, you could say, what's your favorite smell? And someone says. Well, this oh, isn't this. favorite smell, but it's one of those that I love. And I think I'm not alone in this. And I I know that I, it's like, I, I don't want to be huffing, but I love the, you know those those metal markers, those steel markers. They're like the they're, they're like the, the the casings of them are, are. I don't know if it's steel or aluminum. But yeah, you I know, know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. The ones that go on the they're, they're like you dry put them like a dry. They're not dry erase, or maybe they are. No, but they're the big thick ones. Yes, the thick yes, markers, I can and they've smell got that. that right now. They've got that like petroleum smell <laughs> that is so potent, and I, I like the smell of gasoline too. By the yeah. way, I love. I mean, if I'm in the garage and I spill a little gasoline when I'm putting in the lawnmower. Other people are like, oh, the garage smells terrible. And I just want to sit there and take it in because I I love the smell. of. I know it's terrible for you. Yeah, don't do that. It's toxic. I'm not recommending it, but I do. That's a smell that I yeah. love. I was trying to think of obscure. And yeah, I think that's kind of throwing me too. I mean, cutting the grass, just a freshly cut yard for me is tip top. Do you know what's so funny is that my husband absolutely despises the smell of cut grass because growing up one of his jobs in the summertime was like cutting these giant lawns of these different resorts and stuff and weed whacking and weeding and it just like brings back all terrible stuff nostalgic in a bad sense i'll tell you when for that when we're since we're talking nostalgic smells and you said bad smells are okay too um i have this association and and my poor mom she watches this and listens she's a a big fan of open record and mom you made wonderful meals growing up but there was one that was always the one i just there was a smell throughout the house when we when they would make roast and vegetables there would be like carrots and celery and other things was it the cabbage in it maybe it was the cabbage all i know is it was the combination that that sort of whatever soup was going on in there that was you know uh cooking throughout the day I would be outside playing, you know, in the yard or or in the in the street with friends and then dinner time and I would come into the house and immediately that smell would hit me and I would know that's what mm. was for dinner tonight and it was such a letdown because I'm thinking is it burgers and fries is it mac and cheese is it you know something incredibly unhealthy but delicious and it was roasted vegetables. Mm. And so to this day I I like to eat cooked vegetables but the smell of them is just Have you told this to a, your wife? To yeah. never disappoint no. you when you come no. home from work. That's the thing. We <laughs> have, of soup. No, that's the thing. We have an air fryer and we cook a lot of vegetables in the air fryer. Yeah. And I love how yeah. they taste. Broccoli is wonderful yeah. coming out of the air fryer. But if I walk into the house and you smell the broccoli in the air fryer, I want to hurl. Yeah. I, it's, it's the, and I think that is that negative association from. Let's just say that's interesting. And I just thought of one too. Uh, I'm a big popcorn fan. Doesn't matter if it's microwave or freshly popped. But my fiance Courtney has told me, the smell of microwave popcorn makes her want to vomit. Not really? burnt necessarily, Not just burnt, microwave. Just microwave. Huh. Yeah. And I, me personally, I'm like, I don't it care. Good. Take it on. Yeah. You let's smell go. the butter. Right? I love yeah. it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's good. Can, can we let... get can we get any love for um freshly poured asphalt? Oh, oh no. you know, yes. yes. No. I yeah. think it's yeah. bad think so. for people who have to do that no. job. No, I actually asphalt in the summer, whether it's freshly poured or it's just hot enough that you're getting the asphalt smell. For me, that's maybe one. Of, I'm glad you brought that up, <laughs> Kale. That would be my choice because when we were when I was a kid, we had uh, season passes to Six Flags over Mid America, mm-hmm. which is St. Louis, Eureka, Missouri, and in the summer, you know, the whole park is asphalt. 
So hot summer days, you'd get that asphalt. Oh, again, it's it was something about petroleum. Maybe uh, maybe there's the, the the link there, but you'd get that <laughs> asphalt odor. Yeah. So if I smell that now, if I go, if I went outside in our parking lot and it smelled, it was a hot day and it smelled like that, I'd immediately think of being on the Screaming Eagle, which was basically St. Louis's version of the uh, what's the one in Chicago, the American Eagle. American, I think. American, yeah. So it was a, anyway. I'd, I'd feel like I'm on a roller coaster because I love that smell. Um, Speaking of roller coasters, have you guys done one when you're an adult? It's the oh, worst. No, are you kidding me? Oh, Come on, that's got to be another. I used to be able to go question. twenty in a row, and I oh, I almost died in Disney World. And Disney World doesn't even have big roller coasters. No, my kids and I was I like puking to... in the trash can. <laughs> I, it was Sp that bad. Okay, spinny rides. No, no, I'm done with those. The teacups. Mm -mm, no. I was a figure skater too, right? Like I oh, should be, so I should be better time, yeah. than other people, and. I literally was puking in the trash can. So Cedar hmm. uh, Cedar Point in Ohio. I, yeah. I've taken my kids there a couple. It's the roller coaster capital of America. Mm -hmm. And it's they're just phenomenal. Roller, and my kids love them. My wife is not a big fan of roller coasters. So I take my kids and we go and we just ride them all day long. And I could ride roller coasters nonstop. But you get me on a spinny ride Oof. and I'm done. And that's ever that goes way back to a time when I. Cracked my head against my daughter and lot, dislodged uh -oh. a crystal in my ear. Oh, no. It, it vertigo. And uh, that has never really changed. I've never been able to handle spinny stuff ever but since But you can then. do roller coasters. I can do roller coasters. Maybe you shake that crystal back in. You know, I, you know I, I'd like to think I could, but uh, I'll take the roller coasters. You know, that went literally off the rails uh, as we started talking about roller coasters. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Um, but I'll start it. No, that was good, though. That's, I like the, the question. So I'm glad you have some more in store. Um, maybe you can uh, you can replace Sarah's off-the-record question again sometime. Gladly. Um, we would love to have that. You guys, this has been great having you both on. Uh, Stephanie, for your first time on Open Record, and Sam back once again. Thank you both for being on the podcast. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks, thanks for, for having, having me. I'll be back anytime. If you have a topic you'd like us to discuss on Open Record or an issue you think we should investigate for Fox 6 News, send us an email to fox6investigators at fox.com. As always, thank you to the people who make this podcast possible, including our executive producer, Sarah Smith, our editor, Dave Machuda, and chief photographer manning the video switcher, Kale Zimney. I'm Brian Polson. We'll be back next week. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.